Did you know Charles Spurgeon, one of history's greatest preachers, suffered from what he called the minister's fainting fits? Today, we just call it depression. Hi, and thanks for joining me on the Great Stories podcast. I'm Charles Morris, and today we're talking about depression. In a normal year, about 7% of people will at least have one major depressive episode. During a pandemic, well, you can imagine how loneliness, hopelessness, and isolation have exacerbated this issue for many. And that's why today we're returning to a conversation I had with Dr. Zach Eswine last year about how the legendary preacher Charles Spurgeon dealt with depression and what that means for you and me. I should also mention that I've suffered from depression as well. And so if this hits home for you, I want you to know that you're not alone. And during those times when you don't think anyone loves you, including yourself, remember, God loves you. He always has, and he always will. And so with that, let's listen to a pastor and a preaching professor at a seminary, Dr. Zach Heswine. Welcome to Haven Today. This is Blue Monday. And on the line with us from St. Louis, Missouri, is Dr. Zach Eswine. Uh, he teaches homiletics at Covenant Seminary. He's also the lead pastor of Riverside Church, which is located in a suburb of St. Louis. Zach Eswine, we've never had you on this program before, but I'm so looking forward to having you today. Thank you for joining me. Thank you, Charles. It's a pleasure to be with you. We wanted to have you on because you have not just written a book about depression. You have been depressed yourself. We'll get into that. And the book you have happened to write, a couple of books, but uh, are on someone who, like you, was a pastor and suffered from depression. So with that kind of a backdrop, I want to go to October 19, 1856. And in the book that you wrote, you talk about a 22-year-old pastor, and that was probably the first time in his life that he ever caught and suffered from depression. You want to tell us that story as we get started? Yeah, I'd be glad to. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, young pastor, he was uh, preaching to thousands of people. He was one of the first megachurch pastors, if you will. And someone in that uh, large auditor auditorium yelled, fire. Mm. And people thought there was a fire. And so those thousands of people stampeded out. And in the midst of the chaos and confusion of that, several people died and were injured in that. Now, Charles didn't know that was taking place. It was such a large place, and you can remember there are no microphones or anything like that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So he kept preaching for a while, uh, while all that unfolded, until he finally realized something was going on. And because of the, the trauma itself, the people who died, the people who were injured, and also because he had kept preaching, he was mercilessly criticized by the press. Oh, at the okay. time. Uh, and uh, all that put together sent him into a uh, profound depression, what 
what and what we would think of today as Suicide Watch. He was mm-hmm. on Suicide Watch, and his wife Susanna writes that uh, she didn't she didn't know if he would make it. He he was um, tottering on the edge of sanity, and he himself, mm-hmm. as he reflects back on that time, uh, says that uh, even the thought of the Bible. Uh, made him weep. And the fact that he was 22 years old, I I know he's been described as the prince of preachers. He was mighty in the pulpit. Thousands and thousands came to faith through his ministry, but he was only 22 years old. No, that's right. Um, He had, uh, if I remember rightly, he had two young children at the time and a young married uh, young man married, and I think they had been married like ten months before that, and uh, it was it was a, a profoundly dark day that stayed with him the rest of his life. Charles Spurgeon was addressing a large audience. Uh, it was during a session of the Baptist Union, and of course he was uh, middle aged at that time, a seasoned pastor, well known. Hundreds and hundreds of people were pressing in for this conference, and he had what we would call today a flashback. It, uh, what we would, you know, how we would say it, it triggered that memory of a quarter century earlier. And uh, he says that he was entirely unmanned. That's how they would talk about it at the time. And he wondered if he would be able to preach at all. And a reporter who watched him uh, said as much as well. And he, his whole body was full of anxiety uh, going into what we would call, you know, a flight response. And the mm-hmm. trauma that happened 25 years earlier was as present to him as if it was happening again. And he talks mm-hmm. about how he, by the grace of God, somehow was able to preach that night. But it just reminds us that a, a, a trauma that we can experience in our life is one source of depression. And when that trauma goes deep enough in this fallen world, uh, it takes a long time, even saturated with grace. It takes a long time sometimes to overcome. But uh, Christ was overcoming that in his life, but it was no trite thing. It lingered with him. Hmm. There has to be a reason why you started studying. I mean, everybody reads about Charles Spurgeon, especially if they're studying for the ministry. You did. Why the interest? Why the personal interest? in his depression? Well, I originally was studying him uh, from the vantage point of preaching. I was, I was doing doctoral work on um, the role of the Holy Spirit as he saw it when he preached. And so I was reading, you know, hundreds of his sermons, and I began to notice how often he talked about sadness or depression or sorrow. And and how transparent he was from the pulpit. Uh, mm-hmm. And I just, as a person, you know, myself, who struggle, who has uh, struggled with and encountered and had to work through uh, depression and anxiety, uh, you know, I, I was drawn to him in a pastoral way. He, this was somebody, even though he was a Baptist in the 19th century in England, you know, he's, he's kind of ahead of his time, really. Uh, and I began to realize not only his great compassion for those who are depressed, but his own transparency about his own depression. Mm. And uh, began to gradually learn that actually he had this whole ministry 
uh, to people who were depressed, and his empathy and compassion for them was profound and felt. And so you can, you know, even even some of the uh, um, titles, you know, of his sermons, you know, like uh, the frail leaf or the wounded spirit or the fainting soul, the bruised reed, Jesus, the man of sorrows. He, he Spurgeon was, uh, this was on his mind, and he was eager to comfort those who felt the, the deep pain of what he called mental sorrow. And he described mental sorrow, that is depression, uh, he described that as uh, one of the most miserable of pains that anyone could could experience in this life. He said that physical pain is uh, profound in its agony, but uh, the worst kind of pain is the hidden kind, the hidden kind mm. in the soul uh, from depression. So he was a person who I began to discover could minister to me, but also help me as a pastor minister to others. If you just joined us, you're listening to Haven Today, and uh, I'm Charles Morris. We're talking about depression with Dr. Zach Kesswine. He's a pastor. He's also a preaching professor in the middle of America at Covenant Seminary, and he's written a book called Spurgeon's Sorrows, Realistic Hope for Those Who Suffer from Depression. Zach, I'm so thankful you could join us today, and one of the things you seek to do in your book, and it's a good book, a lot of people have told me that, not just me saying that, you're dealing with not only the depression of Spurgeon, but you're, you're talking about practical ways that we can deal with our depression. You want to just explain to me a little bit about, uh, you know, how the Lord helps his people to make it through depression. I should, yeah. Um, Charles Spurgeon, in the book, he's, he's our traveling companion, uh, a fellow friend who's uh, experienced these things. And from his uh, uh, thorough biblical perspective, he said that depression can come from one of three places. Uh, depression can be a part of our chemistry, our DNA. Uh, we can be born with a melancholy bent in our being, he said. He also said that depression can come from circumstances, just like we were just talking about, a circumstance that so marks our life that it lingers with us in a painful way throughout the course of our life. And then he also talked about spiritual depression, depression that can come at us from a, a spiritual angle, the attack of our enemy and uh, our uh, feeling blocked or abandoned by God. And so from that vantage point, he then reminded us of the Christian belief that we are body and soul. And so when he talks about God's provision for us, he'll talk about provisions in creation, like a, a hot bath or nutrition or um, medicine or uh, the need to uh, uh, have a dog as a pet. Um, he'll talk about practical things like he was in foggy and rainy London, and so he, he regularly found that he had to find his way to spend extended time to see sunlight and the beauty of creation. And so he would speak very practically about a way of life that helps uh, manage and uh, speak into these uh, symptoms of depression. But then he would also meditate on the promises of God. He actively pursued humor 
and um, and he actively thought about Jesus as in the Garden of Gethsemane. One of the profound things Charles Spurgeon says is that sometimes in our depression, it isn't the cross that's a comfort to us. Sometimes in our depression, it's not even the resurrection of Jesus that comforts us. Sometimes in our depression, what we need to know is that Jesus was at Gethsemane and that he was betrayed and that he was uh, a sweat like blood and that he would cry out on the cross, not only paying for our sins, but he would take up the cry of the victim and he would say, why have you forsaken me? And that garden of betrayal in Gethsemane, Spurgeon says it this way. He says, when you see the garden of Gethsemane, what you're seeing is the mental depression of Jesus. That's how he puts it. The mental depression of Jesus. And when you see the mental depression of Jesus, you see our general. He's not a general that stands in the back and sends the soldiers forward. No, he's a general who goes first and leads the way. He's the first one through the garden of betrayal. The first one to taste all the darkness of depression on our behalf. And when we see that, we learn that we have a fellow friend with God. These body and soul provisions become uh, not a momentary fix, but a way of life that becomes the means of grace in God's hands to, uh, to heal us, to mend us, to help us. That's very encouraging. Sometimes some of us become followers of Jesus Christ, and we think we should not have any problems, including depression. That's just not true, is it? No, no, not at all. I, it's, uh, we're not in heaven yet. Uh, we're, <laughs> we're in a fallen world. We're, we're with the preacher of Ecclesiastes. We're looking at life under the sun, and we're with the Apostle Paul in the Romans 8, where he, he tells us that all creation aches, and we have an ache within us, and the Spirit of God aches, longing for redemption. And so sometimes... That ache under the sun can uh, can go deep and uh, be like it, it's like it's in our bones, and uh, and when that takes place, you know Charles Spurgeon would say, you know, depression is is more of a misfortune than a fault. He, he would say depression in itself is not a sin. It, it's not a sin to be sad about sad things, you know. Actually, it's wise to be sad about sad things. It, it, it's the, the good, wise response that God gave us. And so when we're, when we're uh, it's, a, it's a sane thing to say, this thing is sad and full of sorrow. This is broken. It's, it's full of misery. It's part of the fallen world. It's, it's part of why we need redemption. To feel that and to name that and to say that isn't a sin. What it does is it makes us begin to sound like a psalmist. You know, we, we begin to pour out our heart to God. We get, we get to practice that ancient Christian teaching that Peter taught us. We, we cast our cares upon the Lord. We, mm-hmm. we don't act like we don't have anxieties. We, we don't act like um, we can overcome them ourselves. Instead, we acknowledge that we have these cares, and then we take hold of the promise that the Lord cares for us, and then we cast those cares upon him. And Paul teaches us similarly. Um, he tells us in Philippians 4, don't, don't be anxious. But in everything by prayer and supplication, you know, make your request known to God. And sometimes folks read those words, don't be anxious. 
And they say, mm-hmm. see, being anxious is a sin. And very dear brothers and sisters in Christ whom I'll be in heaven with sometimes teach this. Um, but I would just say this. Let's remember a couple of things. Number one, um, when the angel Gabriel said to Mary, don't be afraid. Uh, he, the, the angel wasn't implying that Mary was sinning in her fear, that she was a coward. Uh, he was giving pastoral advice. He saw that she was afraid and he was saying, oh, don't be afraid. And hmm. when Paul in Philippians is saying, don't be anxious, I think we need to see it in that light. Why is that? Because the whole tone of Philippians is one of joy and pastoral care. There's not a hint of rebuke in that particular text. The other thing is that Paul himself tells us in other places that he is anxious. He's anxious for the churches. He feels anxiety and things like this. And the other thing is that when you read Paul's various lists of sins, anxiety is just never on those lists. I do realize that not every sin that exists is mentioned in his list. I get that. Right. But it's not on any of his lists. Instead, what you see is Paul uh, seeing folks who feel anxious about anxious things, sadness about sad things, and he says, here's what you do. Uh, by prayer and supplication, turn that worry, turn that fear, turn that anxiety into a request and make it known to God. And by this means of bringing your anxiety to the Lord, he will guard your heart in Christ with a peace that's not understandable. And he will invite you to set your mind on whatever's true and honorable and noble as a way of fighting off um, that darkness. And so uh, I, I think, can we sin in our depression? Sure, sure we can. But the fact of being depressed being a sin, no, I agree with Spurgeon as he points us to the Bible. It's a misfortune, but not a fault. Zach, uh, you talk about this in your book. You talk about suicide and how depression can lead to one person thinking of taking their own life. We see those stats around us today. There are a lot of people who attempt to take their own life. And it seems particularly the case with certain demographic groups, like younger people as well. Uh, Speak to me as a pastor uh, who's gone through depression himself. Uh, How does the Lord sometimes work in relationship to attempted suicide through depression? Well, it's just... um almost too agonizing for words, especially if you're a parent yes. and it's yes. your child or a yes. child and it's your parent or a sibling or a best friend. It's just to to encounter someone who's feeling that way is it feels so helpless and we want to try to fix it. And one of the things we learn from Charles Spurgeon is is number one, he says this, this is a quote from him from the Prince of Preachers. He says, I wonder every day that there are not more suicides considering the troubles of this life. And then one of the things that Charles does with that empathy is talks talks about when he himself has uh, suffered that same temptation, that same painful longing to just find relief. And and so he comes as a, a fellow friend 
a companion who understands rather than as a critic or as someone who judges. And what Charles Spurgeon does is he points us to the provision of God. And so in the Bible itself, some of our greatest heroes have wanted to end their life. And so Spurgeon points us to that, to to Jeremiah or uh, to uh, Jonah and reminds us of Elijah and and how God ministered to us. And so he reminds us that wanting to end our life isn't a sin. Rather, God's provided sympathy, empathy, uh, fellow friends, exemplars who've walked that way in the Bible. And then when we look at the Psalms, like Psalm 77 or like Psalm 88, uh, God has provided prayers for us in the Word. It's like he's given us language for how to talk about sorrow and even life itself. And uh, Spurgeon also would point us to the words of Job and how Job tells us he loathes his life. And And he calls upon us to understand, not like Job's friends, but to understand how it is that someone could feel that way, the kind of internal mental misery someone must feel where they think that to end their life would bring the relief that they need. And so Charles Spurgeon, you know, reminding us of Paul uh, grappling with should he stay or go, uh, he reminds us that sometimes the, the question that we feel of wanting to die, sometimes it's a sane question. It makes all the sense in the world in light of the circumstantial trauma that we face or the biological pain that we live with. He says, even saints can desire to die. And starting from that place of empathy, he invites us uh, with that fellow friend from Gethsemane to come alongside of someone. Now, from that place of empathy, uh, he will also appeal to a person not to end their life. And he will, he will do it in this way, he'll, he'll remind us. He'll say things like, circumstances are hard. Life will only be bad always, someone will think. But then Spurgeon will remind us, um, we, can't, we can't actually know the future. And then he'll tell us about Elijah, who wanted to die. And then the best parts of Elijah's life came later. And if Elijah had ended mm-hmm. his life, <laughs> thinking that there was no relief, thinking that he all he knew the future and the future will, would be always bad at all the time. Uh, Spurgeon reminds us that uh, Elijah was comforted by God with food, <clears throat> with rest, with nourishment, with time, with promises. He was restored. And then the best things that Elijah in his depression could never imagine actually came to pass. And that's one of the things we, we want to remind ourselves, not in a trite way, but from that place of agonizing empathy, that depression tells us that we know the future. And we actually don't. And so we appeal to one another to trust the one who knows the future to put, again, the deepest cares of our hearts into the hands of the one who knows the future and to trust that tomorrow can be different than we imagine it.
Now that's no trite thing. And then finally, Charles Spurgeon would say this, the truest Christians can experience depression and desire death. The truest Christians can do foolish things too. And some of us might be wondering, what about my Christian friend who ended their life? We feel the pain of it, the guilt of it. And Spurgeon would remind us of two things. Number one, when the person ended their life, they did not know all the consequences that it would bring about. And in that, they did a foolish and painful thing because of how it damaged and hurt the rest of us. But then Spurgeon would remind us, and it's controversial, I know, but he would say that ending our life is not the unforgivable sin. He would say that even the doubting Christian is not forsaken by God and that we can entrust our hope into the Lord and what he knows about that person and trust that even such a sin as ending our life can be paid for and forgiven in Christ. Now, I know some have to grapple with that and wrestle with mm-hmm. that, but that was mm-hmm. Charles Spurgeon's hope, and that's what he taught. Zach, uh, probably every single one of us knows someone, someone close to us right now that's undergoing depression, that someone might even be us. You want to give all of us some practical advice? Yeah, one of, one of the most uh, disorienting things about depression is that uh, it often has no rhyme or reason that we can tell. Uh, sometimes, as Charles Spurgeon would say, you begin to cry and you don't know why. And so sometimes we just don't know the reason that we're experiencing this inner darkness and pain that we are. And that can be uh, hard on us who are trying to care for a person who we love and we want them to just snap out of it. You know, the sun is shining and we want, and we try to reason with them. Look, the sun is shining. You should be happy. Mm-hmm. But they know this already. The problem they're having isn't that they don't know the sun is shining. The problem is that they don't know why it's so dark inside. And, and so beginning there with this, we don't have to know the reason. We can know that God knows the reason. And we can trust what God knows, even when we don't know it. And Spurgeon said it this way. He said, we would feel a lot more for the prisoner if we knew more about the prison. And he was talking about depression. And so, number one, we can't, we can't fix it. Uh, no, even, even no amount of Bible, uh, quoting the Bible, as important as a help as that is, it can't, it doesn't fix it. We remind ourselves that quoting the Bible, if we have a physical injury, uh, it's not a magical cure, but uh, it orients us back to what's true and it lifts our heart to God. But we, uh, if, if, I, if, if in essence I say, here are two Bible verses, call me in the morning, like a doctor might do, we're missing something profound. What depression calls us to do is to realize we can't fix it. We aren't in control. And now we have to realize and admit that we're creatures. We're not God. And so now we come alongside another person. We walk with them. We learn from Job's friends when they first arrived on the scene. They tore their clothes. They sat in the ashes. They didn't say a word. They grieved. 
and they sat with empathy there. And when we do that, the person feels seen, heard, known. And of course, depression is telling them that they're not seen and they're not heard and they're not known. And so we get to counter those messages just by being present the way Job's friends were early on. The other thing that Spurgeon tells us is metaphor. Ask the person, what's it like? Instead of trying to uh, admonish the one who weeps or correct the one who weeps or instruct the one who weeps or fix the one who weeps, we remember what the scriptures tell us. We weep with those who weep. And a tool that we can do is tell us what it's like. I don't know what it's like. You tell me what it's like. And you can say something like this. Is some, some people feel like they're in complete darkness and they can't see. Other people, they, they say they're in a maze and they can't find their way out. Some people feel like they're under the water and they're too far down and they feel like they're going to drown. What, what does it feel like to you? And because it's a metaphor, as Spurgeon reminds us, he draws upon all of these metaphors from the Bible. The metaphor allows a person to try to put language to their experience, even when the experience is too big for words. And then when they explain that to you, well, it, it just feels like I'm weighed down with heavy blankets and I just can't shake those blankets off no matter what I try. Then we get to say, wow, and we get to empathize. That must feel so discouraging. I, I would hate that feeling of being in a maze. I can't imagine how you're getting through this day. I, I understand why it must be so hard. And now the person feels understood. And I think one of the things we have to remember is that for a person with depression, a lot of times that is a, a heavy doses of accusation and condemnation internally. And when they feel that way, uh, it I'll try to say it this way. It takes more faith to do less. It takes more faith to do less. Mm -hmm. So uh, we may have accomplished more that day. Maybe our loved one who's depressed can't find their way out of bed that day. But they finally do get out of bed. And they, they chew on one little bit of a, of a Bible verse, like they're chewing on a bit of ice um, because they're sick and they can't handle a full diet. They're just chewing on that little bit and then they uh, take a walk and they see a bird and they give thanks for the bird and then they realize they just have to go back to bed. We might say that as weak, mm -hmm. but I think from the vantage point of the Lord, that took profound faith, great faith, to do much le less than we did that day. Now I think we know that when we see someone who has a chronic illness that has, uh, has them in a wheelchair, for example, or they've mm -hmm. broken their yes. arm, we can see that they have a cast and so that, that that's going to slow things down for them. It's harder for us when we can't see, but the person right. has a cast on the inside, something that needs, that's broken and needs time to mend and heal. And so to give them empathy, invitation to a metaphor, to, to recognize the amount of faith it takes just to do what they do, even though it seems much less than what we've done in a day. And then in all of that, time. They need time. There's often no quick remedy. And, and folks know we're with them 
and we're seeking to understand them just like the Lord is with us. And they experience mm. in that, like Job's friends offered at first, they experience the presence of God, the sympathy of Christ. Mm. Amen. Zach S. Wine, a pastor and a seminary professor, relate to me. Uh, tell me about what someone else has encountered where the Lord has broken through. Tell me about your own life. Well, I, you know, um, I think biologically or just uh, in our family, my family's, uh, many of us seem to have a, at least a melancholy sort of frame of mind and uh, a, a struggle with sadness. The strength of it, of course, is that we feel what other people feel, but um, yes. kind of a melancholy bent. And uh, coming to recognize that and then facing circumstances in my life. And so uh, I, I grew up in a, a home of multiple divorces, you know, I think it was uh, three divorces and five marriages growing up as a kid. My family trying to love each other and not knowing how. Trying hard, but not knowing how. And, and uh, I think the multiple uh, shock waves of those, those, you know, broken relationships affect a kid. And um, mm -hmm. as a, as a child, I grew up that way. And then, uh, and I think later on in my own life, uh, I myself uh, am a divorced person and uh, coming face to face with those kinds of circumstances and my own uh, contributions to them. Also, uh, the nature of the divorce that I was of my own life was that I was the I was the one with the deer in the headlights who was left and mm -hmm. didn't see it coming and had to mm. come to terms with all that and became a single dad with primary care of my three kids and uh, mm. needed to step down from the ministry that I had. And, and during that time period, I lost about 30 pounds. My hair was falling out. I couldn't breathe. I just, I get fixated just on breathing. And all I could do at night was to begin to say a short prayer, Lord, uh, you give the breath in my lungs. Lord, you're, you're the one that enables me to breathe. And uh, sometimes it would be Psalm 23, Lord, you are my shepherd. And that's all I could say, Lord, you are my shepherd with each breath. And as, uh, as I have walked through some of those situations, what I have found is that uh, there have been, what's flown out of that is what we might call panic attacks. And so mm -hmm. I'll go through seasons of, profound panic. And what that means is that your body feels like you're under threat, like you're in a, you got to flee, like something is attacking you and you have to run and get to safety. Mm -hmm. But of course, you're just walking down the street or you're just sitting in a chair. You're safe as anybody. But um, it's this recognition and remembrance of past trauma or the fear of present or future trauma. And uh, I have needed great help of people to walk with me. I've needed to pay attention to things like how much caffeine or sugar I have because those things contribute to anxiety and sadness um, if they're not, you know, done in a 
proper way. And, uh, and I've needed to just weather days of darkness and days of anxiety where I feel so afraid uh, or I feel uh, so sad and trying to know that that's learning to know that those two facts, my fear and my sadness, are not the only thing true of me. What's most true about me is the hmm. fellow friend from the Garden of Gethsemane, the, the fellow friend who cried out from the cross, the, the Lord and Savior who rose from the grave and presently intercedes for me, who knows me by name and will come for me, the one who said he hmm. goes to prepare a place for me, the one who has said that no one can snatch me, even me, the, the, the fearful, sad one. No one can snatch even me from his hand, and no one can snatch me from the Father's hand. And this kind of uh, uh, compassion and strength and power from the Lord, I've been learning to take hold in community of those promises and to take hold of those stories. That's the true story about any of us in our depression, in our anxiety, yes. in our fear. Yes. That with all the community that we mm -hmm. lean upon, the paying attention to nutrition and things like that, the, the having to, to get through a day that we can't fix, and it's bedtime and it's unfixed, and now we're up in the night watches with anxiety at three in the morning, to mm -hmm. know, yeah, mm -hmm. those things are true, but, but what else is true? And to begin to meditate on that. You know what? A friend mm. reminded me once, they, they're reflecting on Philippians 4, and they said this. When you think even, uh, when you think uh, what if, remember even if. Mm. That, that's a little thing, but that's been helpful to me. Even if I'm afraid and sad, right? Instead of what if I'm afraid and sad? Even if I'm afraid and sad, that fear and sadness doesn't have the last word. The Lord is my shepherd. He has the last word in my life. He knows how to handle fear. And he knows how to care for me in my sadness. All is not lost. And so I've been seeking uh, to be honest about that as a leader. And learning to, to be the humbling work of depending upon the means of God's gracious provision in the midst of his community. And, hmm. uh, you know, someone asked me, you know, they, want, they wanted to, to be a pastor or a leader. And they said, and they, they have profound depression in seasons of their life. And they said, can they, can they be a pastor? Can they be a leader? Uh, can they still be of influence hmm. for good? And I said, of course you can. Of course you can. You know, <laughs> think about Elijah, you know. Uh, think yes. about King David. Think about uh, Jeremiah, you know. Uh, Think about me, yes. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, oh. but it might mean this. It, it might mean that um, if you live in Minnesota, where you have six months of winter, uh, you know, it might mean that you have to take your vacation in January rather than June. It right. might mean you have to find your way to some sunshine, you know, uh, <laughs> in a way that's different from other people. So things mm. like that. Zach. I've heard this term used before, spiritual depression. In fact, uh, a man who was a great pastor in England before you, but after Spurgeon wrote Spiritual Depression Causes and Cures, spiritual depression 
is different than biological depression, isn't it? Yeah. If you think about, say, a biological depression, as Spurgeon pointed out, that's that's a, a, a melancholy, a sadness that's just in our DNA. It's something about about our makeup that, that has that uh, bent to it. And, uh, and then, like we've talked about, there's the circumstances that we face in life and God's providence that are frowning providences, painful providences, and, and they can be a source of depression in our life. But Spurgeon pointed out that there's a, a third uh, spiritual depression. And the spiritual depression uh, has to do with our relationship with God, our conscience. Mm. And uh, sometimes we believe that God is against us when he's not. And so, for example, the famous story of Pastor John Newton, the, the writer of the, that famed hymn, Amazing Grace, and, and his care for the famed poet, William Cooper, who wrestled with depression all his life. Mm-hmm. But part mm-hmm. of William Cooper's depression was that he could, he could believe that God's grace was for other people, no matter what they had done, but he couldn't believe it for himself. And Charles Spurgeon talks about this in his own life, that he underwent this kind of spiritual depression where all he could see was his own sin. He could perhaps see grace for other people, but not for himself. And so spiritual depression is being flooded with condemnation and guilt. It's the attack of our enemy. Uh, it, it's as if we are aware of our sin, but there's no remedy. Mm. And so we feel the full weight of torment and condemnation, but there's no remedy in Christ. So it mm. would be like uh, the Apostle Paul when he talks about the was the thorn in his flesh, and he says it was like a messenger from Satan. So it would be like experiencing a messenger from Satan, which would be something like it wouldn't be Paul. Remember. You're bought by the blood of Christ. You know, Paul, you're mm. a son of the king. It wouldn't be messages mm. like that. It would be messages more condemning, accusatory. You call yourself mm. a Christian, Paul. Look at your past. Look at what you've done. Look at all your sin. Look at the critics that you have. Look at the people who prefer Apollos over you. You're abandoned by God. It would be messages like that. And so a spiritual depression is experiencing either conviction for our own sin or condemnation for us being a sinner, but feeling there's no mm. remedy for us. And he says mm. that kind of depression is the worst of all miseries. Mm. And uh, of course, there is a kind of issue of conscience that causes a spiritual depression that is legitimate. That is, we are choosing sin in some way, and that sin is doing us harm. And instead of letting go of that sin and holding on to the, the, the better, greater, deeper love of Christ, instead of that, we're holding on to this false love, this temporary love. Mm. And, mm. Uh, and that will create a depression in us that's spiritual. The remedy for that is the gospel. And so if I'm holding mm-hmm. on to a, mm-hmm. a temporary, false, illusory, uh, disordered love, and I need to let go of that and hold on to the true, better, deeper, wider, higher love of Christ. As soon as I repent in that way, let go of the one love and hold on to the other, then there's great you know, peace and relief 
and that spiritual depression will subside. But what about the person like uh, William Cooper, who, uh, in a way that we can't understand, will have moments where he sees the gospel for himself, but profoundly struggles with assurance of faith? Well, we're reminded of two things. Thankfully, we're not saved by our assurance of faith. We're saved by faith. And uh, that is good news. And we need a friend. William Cooper needed a lifelong friend like, mm-hmm. like uh, Newton and others, a whole community, to walk with him, uh, to empathize with him, to speak the gospel to him when this kind of spiritual attack came on him. And uh, we need people in our corner like that too. Mm. Zach, you've really opened up. You've really shared from your personal life. And thank you for doing that. That's not easy. There are some people that have turned the volume up on their car radio. They've leaned more into the speaker, however they're listening to you right now. They're in great need, and they identify with you and what the Lord has allowed you to go through. Would you lead us in prayer right now? Yes, I would. Oh, Lord, thank you for telling us you are the man acquainted with grief. Thank you for telling us you are a man of sorrows. Thank you for showing us how you wept at the tomb of Lazarus. Thank you for the way that you weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. We feel afraid sometimes that you will correct us, admonish us, rebuke us, dismiss us with our weeping, Lord. But we thank you you've told us that's not your way. And we ask now, I ask, Lord, for anyone who's feeling as though life is not worth living, for anyone who feels they're overcome with darkness, for anyone who feels there's no hope, oh, Lord, our fellow friend from Gethsemane, would you you in a very present way, Lord, draw near? Would you whisper gospel, grace, truth to that dear one? And would you enable them to know that the sorrowing have a Savior? And we ask that in your precious name. Amen. Amen. Zach Heswine in St. Louis, a pastor, someone who has gone through depression in his life. And you also are on the faculty at Covenant Seminary. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Charles. Thank you for joining me for another episode of Great Stories with Charles Morris. I hope this conversation with Zach Heswine was an encouragement to you. If you think this would be helpful for someone you know who suffers from depression, please send it their way. And there are also resources we put up on our website at haventoday.org. And if today's episode blessed you, can I also ask that you leave us a kind review? You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, but you can also go to haventoday.org and sign up for our weekly email and discover our other episodes posted on this blog. Thank you for joining me once again on Great Stories with Charles Morris.